Listener Production. A warning. This episode touches on topics involving violence against women and sexual assault. So please listen with care. The number for 1800 Respect is 1800 737732. And the number for Lifeline is 131114. Welcome back to Crime Insiders Forensics. This week, more gripping insights into the world of forensic science. For those joining us for the first time, my name's Catherine Fox. I'm a former GP, crime author and screenwriter. I'm enthralled by forensics and have spent thousands of hours researching for books and screenplays. So, I thought, why not turn my research into a podcast? Every week... You'll be joining me in discovering how forensic science is helping solve high-profile crimes in Australia and around the world. They were then able to focus their attention on this person, picked up a coffee cup that he'd disposed of in a public place, and they swabbed the coffee cup, obtained a DNA profile, and matched it to all of these DNA samples that have been collected from these multiple crimes throughout California. On this week's episode, a breakthrough forensic method which has helped police catch some of the world's most infamous serial killers. Professor Dennis McNevin is an expert in the field of genealogy, an investigative technique using DNA databases to trace familial relationships to crack cold cases and solve crimes. So think 23andMe and Ancestry.com. If you're on one of those sites you could be part of a criminal investigation. We'll dive into that with Dennis a little later in the conversation. But to start, a detective in the US had a piece of DNA and the idea to run it through a popular DNA database. What he found would revolutionise the world of forensics and lead to the arrest and conviction of the elusive Golden State Killer. So DNA profiling only really took off in uh, the late 80s, but it really wasn't until the turn of the century that jurisdictions around the world began establishing DNA databases. So until that time, you really had to rely upon police finding DNA at a crime scene, having a suspect, taking a DNA sample from the suspect and matching them. There were no databases to cross-link between crimes and people who are already in jail because Criminal DNA databases are populated by the DNA profiles of people who have been convicted in general. One of the advances or or useful aspects of DNA is that it can be compared with other profiles, and that's how we can identify whether someone was associated with a crime because their DNA matches the DNA that's been found from a crime scene. And that doesn't necessarily imply guilt, but it certainly links them to a crime And that means that that person has some questions to answer. Now, what we can also do is match DNA between crimes. So if a crime is committed in one jurisdiction and another is committed in a different jurisdiction, then if those two DNA profiles, which may not match a suspect, are uploaded to a DNA database, then there'll be a match. And that gives police intelligence that the same person was responsible for two different crimes. And that's what happened in this case. This string of 
offences had occurred in different jurisdictions in California, and it became apparent to police that it was the same person who was involved with all of these crimes because their DNA had been linked to all of these different crimes that occurred in different jurisdictions. And that meant that the police knew they were dealing with a serial killer who had been responsible for multiple homicides and multiple rapes. So this then raised the, um, the significance of this crime and, it, and it, it signaled to the California police that they were dealing with a very serious offender here who, uh, and that they could, they could potentially solve a lot of crimes by finding this offender. So how long did it take until he was charged and found? Well, just because the police knew that they were dealing with the same person doesn't mean that they knew who that person was. And it wasn't until 2018 that um, one of the detectives who was involved in in, um, investigating this cold case came up with the idea of submitting the DNA that had been found at these multiple crime scenes to a genetic uh, database of the type that um, many of um, your listeners probably have subscribed to, companies like Ancestry.com, and 23andMe. And many of us, including myself, have submitted our DNA to these databases to find our ancestry because you know, many people are interested in their genetic ancestry. And um, there was uh, one particular database called GEDmatch. And GEDmatch was like a clearinghouse that enabled people to download their individual profile from one of these commercial companies and re-upload it to this website that allowed them to cross-compare their DNA profiles with those from other people who had done the same thing. And this uh, detective uh, had the idea that he would submit this crime scene sample, analyse it in the same way, and upload it to GEDmatch. And he was able to identify genetic relatives of the Golden State Killer. So they were able to find a, a relative, and I, I can't remember exactly the, the genetic distance, but it was something like a second cousin. What this meant was that the, uh, the detective employed the services of a genealogist, and what the genealogist did was to construct the family trees of these genetic relatives. And they build these family trees back until they get to a point where there is a common ancestor with the crime scene DNA. And once they find this common ancestor, or common ancestors, if you've got multiple branches of the tree then you can build that tree back down and triangulate to infer the identity of the unknown DNA donor. And they were able to do this with the Golden State Killer. He became one of a number of the different possibilities. So these family trees can produce multiple potential identities for the unknown DNA uh, sample. One of them was Joseph James D'Angelo. And having these genetic suspects, they were able to eliminate some of them based on their age, where they lived, whether they'd ever been to California, where the crimes were committed, that kind of thing. They were then able to focus their attention on this uh, person and uh, followed him covertly and picked up, I think it was a coffee cup that he'd disposed of in a public place. And in the United States, once you dispose of something in a public space, it becomes public property. So the police are able to obtain that uh, and they swabbed the coffee cup, obtained a DNA profile and matched it to all of these DNA samples that have been collected from these multiple crimes throughout California. 
And that was the key evidence that linked Joseph James D'Angelo to all of these crimes. So what does it actually mean? We hear this term a lot, particularly in television and, and in books, there's a DNA match and it's almost like closed case. But what does that actually mean? Because as I understand it, there's no 100% match. So what does it actually mean? So there's two kinds of DNA profiles that I've been talking about here. One is the kind of standard DNA profile that's generated from crime scene evidence and that's obtained from suspects. The other is the kind of DNA profile that you submit to these genetic companies like 23andMe and Ancestry.com. So I'll talk first about the standard DNA profile. So the standard DNA profile involves looking at a very small portion of the human genome because the human genome is 3.2 billion DNA letter codes long. It's, it's, a, it's a very long molecule. So we only look at a very small portion of it. And we look at regions that are repetitive DNA, so bits of DNA that repeat themselves. And the reasons that we look at these parts of the DNA is because they differ greatly amongst individuals. So your DNA, uh, Kathy, at these particular parts of the genome are very different to my DNA at the same parts of the genome. And these repetitive elements of DNA are called short tandem repeats, or STRs for short. And a typical DNA profile these days consists of looking at the number of these repetitive elements at 20 or so different parts of the genome called loci, plural of locus. So we've got 20 different loci on the genome. Each one's got a repetitive element of DNA, and we record how many of these repetitive elements there are at each of these loci. And they're going to vary a lot amongst us. Very, very different. So if you generate a DNA profile from a crime scene sample at these 20 loci, and the number of repetitive elements is exactly the same as the DNA that you've obtained from a suspect, then you have very strong evidence linking the suspect to that DNA. Now, as you say, you can never be certain because we haven't sequenced the whole genome. We're only looking at a portion of it. But we can calculate how rare that genotype is and how likely it is to match a random member of the population. And it turns out that if you, using modern STR assays, looking at these 20 different loci, the probability of a particular DNA profile matching a random member of the population is of the order of 10 to the minus 20 or, or even less. So that's 0.2001. So it's, a, it's an infinitesimal probability that you're going to match someone randomly, which is why if there is a match, it's very strong evidence. You can't say it's certain, but it's a very, very unlikely event that it's going to be a random match. In a one in how many terms? Yep. I mean, that's a lot of decimal points. One in 20 million or more. Wow. Yeah, I mean, that's roughly how, we, how you would think about it. Yes. And, and, the, and the police generate a statistic called a likelihood ratio, which is the likelihood of observing this matching, these two matching profiles, given two competing hypotheses. One is the prosecution hypothesis that it's the suspect is the donor of the DNA. And one is the defense hypothesis, which is that it's a random member of the population. 
is it easier to argue in a, in a country like the United States with 330 million people that there could be a handful of people in the country that match this? Yes, there, there could be. But you have to remember that not all of those people are equally likely to have committed the crime. Because, you know, you may have five people in the US who could randomly match that DNA. But if there's a person in who lived in New York all their lives and never left New York, they are extremely unlikely to have been the donor of that DNA. So you've got to take that into account as well. How difficult is it to explain that to a jury? Well, it can be very difficult, okay, because there is a phenomenon known as the CSI effect. And the CSI effect is coined because of the popularity of shows like CSI on TV. And these shows tend to make the viewer think that A, there's always DNA evidence available, which is not always the case, and B, that if there is DNA evidence and there's someone with a match, then they're automatically guilty. Okay, and that's not the case. So all that's demonstrated by a matching DNA profile is that there is very strong evidence linking someone to a crime scene. Now, that person may be linked to the crime scene for any number of reasons. They may have been present at the crime scene before the crime was committed. They may have been present at the crime scene after the crime was committed. For example, someone who walks through a crime scene unwittingly, unknowingly after the crime's been committed. Or their DNA may be transferred to evidence through a process of contamination. So, for example, if laboratories have very lax or poor procedures and samples get mixed up in the laboratory and there's cross-contamination, that's another possible explanation for that, for that scenario. So, you have to consider all of these things in combination. The fact that there's a DNA match only suggests one thing, and that is that a suspect whose DNA is matched to has a link to a crime scene for whatever reason. And so you need to examine all of the evidence in its entirety to build up a picture of why that might be the case. So in the case of the Golden State Killer, he was finally charged in 2018 and sentenced to multiple life imprisonment in 2020. So did that trigger around the world the idea of familial searching? Yes, it did. Yes, it it, it, it has. I, I mean, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it has revolutionised the use of DNA for criminal investigations. Has it been used in Australia? Um, Genealogy hasn't been used to date, as far as I'm aware, in Australia for a criminal matter. However, and you remember a a while ago I explained about um, standard DNA profiling using the STRs. In Australia, it's a matter of routine that if um, a DNA sample is found from a crime scene and there are no suspects or other investigations haven't led to a match, you can upload this DNA to the uh, National Criminal Identification DNA Database, or NCID for short, and it's compared with all of the DNA profiles that are on that database, which mainly consists of DNA taken from people who have been convicted and and are in jail. Of particular other violent crimes or anyone? Uh, it, it varies from state to state, but in general, depends on the on the sentence that you've received. If you receive a sentence of a year or more, then your DNA is maintained on the database. 
So DNA is routinely compared to these DNA samples. And you can get a direct match, as I mentioned before, which implicates that person in the crime. They may be in jail for a different reason, but they may have committed other crimes. And this has solved a lot of cases. So there, there are a lot of people who are currently incarcerated who have committed crimes that we don't know about. But if there's no direct match, you can also have a partial match. This partial matching is really only for STR profiling only really works for close genetic relatives. So here we're talking about children, parents, or siblings. And children's parents and siblings, what we call first-order genetic relatives. And so you get these matches, which aren't perfect matches, but which are partial matches. And in the case of the Adelaide rapist, there'd been a number of uh, sexual assaults committed against uh, women in North Adelaide, in, in a particular uh, part of Adelaide. And DNA had been collected and there were no matches to, no direct matches, no suspects. But this was the first instance where this partial matching had been performed in a criminal case in Australia. And they were able to identify a first order genetic relative of the DNA sample that had been retrieved from the sexual assaults, the male profile. So within their criminal database, they had a close relative Correct. of the rapist. That's right. And it wasn't just one. So there were a number of candidates that this technique had turned up. And the police were able to rank them based on probabilities, the likelihood ratios that I talked about before. They were able to rank the candidates. The person who was eventually charged with the offences was not the highest rank. They were the seventh. But it certainly narrowed a pool of suspects for the police to focus on. They were then able to concentrate their efforts on these individuals, look at other evidence that might implicate them, mobile phone records, their age, whether they lived in the area, that kind of thing, and find you know, some real candidates. And then they were able to gather enough evidence to warrant collection of DNA from a person who they had reasonable grounds to suspect. And indeed, that's what they did with this individual. They were able to collect a sample, and it was a perfect match to the DNA that had been retrieved from these sexual assault samples. So did the police need a warrant to access sub-information of that database, or it's just accessible? No. So to, um, to interrogate the DNA database, that's a routine police practice in Australia. And it's for every state and territory. every state and territory. But as I mentioned earlier, it's only since the turn of the century that it, the, the six or seven databases in Australia, or eight databases in Australia have been linked. Until 2000 or so, I think, I can't remember the exact year, but it was around about the year 2000, each state and territory had its own database and they weren't linked. So if you're on a DNA database in New South Wales and a crime was committed in Western Australia by someone who was already in jail in New South Wales, there would be no link and they would not know that. So it's only been relatively recently that police have been able to link those databases in Australia. How are these samples actually stored are the original samples destroyed or are they stored somewhere or is it all then translated into digital storage and kept somewhere? 
So there are requirements under forensic procedures legislation that prescribe this kind of thing, how long samples have to be stored and in what form. And it's generally proportional to the uh, seriousness of the offence. So for homicide, samples have to be stored longer. For break and enters, not so long. Each jurisdiction will store their own samples, and it's usually store. I mean, the the, the original um, item from the crime scene, whether it's a murder weapon or a piece of clothing, will be stored. But also the DNA that's extracted from those items, or and the, and for that matter, the finger marks and the the uh, fibres and the other analyses that are performed, they are also stored. So in the case of DNA, DNA will be stored in a a, a freezer, like a minus 80 degree freezer somewhere in in the laboratory. And the reason for this is because there could be a challenge. You know, there could be uh, new evidence that arises and a person may, investigators may need to go back to that evidence. And they need the original source. And they need the original source. That's right. New technologies might be developed. All these kinds of things might happen. So those samples are stored. But what's entered into the database that's shared between jurisdictions in Australia is digital data. And that consists of those numbers, the repeats that I talked about earlier. So a typical DNA profile, the data that's stored would be something like this. Locus 1, 13, 17, which is the two alleles that we inherit from our parents, and that's the number of repeats that we get from each parent. Locus 2, 6, 9. Locus 3, 11, 13. So it's just a series of numbers that designates the DNA profile. And those are the numbers that are compared to other profiles. So it's just a case of if all the numbers are the same for a particular profile, it's a match. How long does it actually take to do a search? You know, on television, it's like, oh, you watch the screen, numbers scrolling, and then 30 seconds later, it's a match. How long in reality does it take through the system to actually cross-reference everything. If you're just talking about searching the database, then it can happen fairly quickly. So not instantaneously, because there are a number of checks that have to be performed before you allowed access to the database. And that's because each state has its own legislation, the forensic procedures legislation that I mentioned earlier, about what can and can't happen with DNA samples and data that's derived from those samples. And so the, the big problem, the reason that it was such a huge effort to get this, um, this national DNA database was because you have to make sure that each of the particular jurisdictions' legislation is satisfied before you compare samples. And, and there may be different conditions. So a sample that's compared between Western Australia and New South Wales might have a different set of conditions than a sample that's compared between Western Australia and Queensland. And so these conditions have to be checked, that the legislative requirements for, for comparing DNA samples have been met, and that can take time. And that's the biggest bottleneck, is making sure that the legislative requirements of the forensic procedures legislation in each of these different states has been met before you compare the DNA samples. And that can take usually not longer than a day or so, but the physical process of entering the data into the computer, once that's satisfied, is virtually instantaneous. There's a case called the Somerton Man. I've actually followed this for years. Can you explain who he was? Because he's been a mystery for years and years. Yeah, so the Somerton Man was the name given to an unknown person, an otherwise unknown person, who was found on a beach in uh, Adelaide. And 
it attracted a lot of interest and intrigue because no one knew how they got there or who they were. And in his pocket was found a torn off page from a a book written by a 12th century poet called Omar Khayyam, I think Mm. their name was. And there was a lot of intrigue about this, the identity of this person. And, And many theories were put forward, one of which was that that they were a spy of some description. And um, well, the Cold War had just started. That's right. He yes. was dressed in a suit. Yes. Which yes. is unusual to be lying at the beach in a suit. Yeah. Tags were removed from his clothing. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Right. The tags were cut off his clothing. So people wow. couldn't say whether they were made in Italy, whether they were made in Australia, whether they were made in Russia. That's interesting. That was a novelty as well. Yeah. So you can understand why people were intrigued by this case. So he, he was buried, the, the body was buried, but before it was buried, uh, a death mask was taken. So it's like a plaster cast of, of the face. That cast had hairs embedded in it that belonged to the, uh, the Somerton man, this, this body. So the body was, you know, six foot under, so it was fairly inaccessible. But one individual at the University of Adelaide called Derek Abbott has made it his life's work to find out the identity of the Somerton man. And he uh, was able to obtain one of the hairs from this cast and sent it to a laboratory in the United States. They used a new kind of DNA recovery method that was used for ancient DNA type science. So the kinds of techniques that were used to recover DNA from Neanderthals and woolly mammoths that have been recovered from, wow. from the permafrost. And um, so they used these new techniques that had been used for this kind of research to sequence the DNA in this single hair. So it was a single hair that was sent to the laboratory. From this DNA sequence, they were able to produce a profile of the type that's submitted to these genetic, commercial genetic companies. This profile was then compared to others in the database and they were able to infer that there were living relatives who had uploaded their DNA. And so a genetic genealogist called Colin Fitzpatrick was able to build these family trees that I talked about before, find a common ancestor and triangulate back down and identified or, or, or inferred that this individual was in fact someone called Carl Webb, who... Uh, Which is not a very exotic name. Not a very for exotic a spy. name. That's right. And Carl had sort of estranged himself from his family, I think, in Melbourne. His wife had left him. His wife had left him, right. Okay. And he'd sort of, he'd, he'd disappeared and no one sort of knew what had happened to him. Um, and so his historical details were consistent with the facts of the case. Because no one ever reported him missing in Melbourne, which is yeah, tragic. It's yeah. quite sad to think about. Yeah, so maybe maybe that could have been solved a lot earlier as well. Do you think there's going to be a move to actually for crimes and current crimes because of the pressure to prevent further violent crime and protect the community? Um, do you think there'll be moves legally across Australia to access the genealogy sites? I know that police are very interested in the technique. And uh, 
you know, with good reason, because as you say, it has the potential to avoid future crimes and, and to bring perpetrators to justice. But like any technique, you have to balance the positives and the negatives. So there are a lot of positives with genetic genealogy. There are some negatives as well. And most of those are concerned with genetic privacy issues. I think people do have a right to consent to the use of their DNA for this purpose. So just because you upload your DNA to determine your personal ancestry doesn't mean that you are comfortable having your DNA used for criminal investigations. But if you do consent, you're then going to get a select group consenting and people who are more likely to be involved in violent crime are less likely to consent themselves, but they can't control their relatives. They can't control their relatives, yeah. And, that, and that's the other privacy issue here is that just because you consent to having your DNA um, used for this purpose, that means that by if your DNA is being used, then by definition, your relative's DNA is also being used for that purpose because your DNA might link to a relative who isn't comfortable with their DNA being used for this purpose. You're currently working with the AFP. What does that work involve? I'm um, seconded or have been seconded until very recently to the uh, Australian Federal Police National DNA Program for Unidentified and Missing Persons. This is a program that's trying to coordinate a national response to the hundreds of unidentified human remains that exist in this country and long-term missing persons that may or may not be associated with those unidentified human remains. And the idea is to apply the sorts of technologies that we've been talking about today, not just those but others as well, in a concerted and coordinated effort to try and identify some of these missing persons and, and bring closure to some of the families who just don't know what might have happened to a missing person, a missing loved one. And a lot of the um, effort in the program is concerned with trying to make these links between jurisdictions that I've been talking about, you, you know, coordinating efforts between states and territories so that... Um, you know, we, we, we leave no stone unturned as a result of lack of communication or coordination amongst jurisdictions. We certainly don't jump in with using the big guns first. So very often these cases can be solved simply by doing a database search from a standard DNA profile. Missing people will have their DNA collected from... Um Samples at home, things that they would have used. Yes, that's right. Regularly, even yeah. children, they take um, from toys and things like that that they to played with. Toothbrushes are a great source of DNA because hairbrushes, yeah, yeah. hairbrushes. So that's you know the easiest way to to try and establish the identity of a of human remains is to is to yeah look at these what we call direct reference samples. So things they may have used. Uh, sometimes you have baby screening cards with DNA blood spots that might provide DNA for this purpose. But if that doesn't work, then you can turn to relatives. And, of course, these relatives have to consent for their DNA to be used in this way. Um, but we can do the kinds of partial matching that I was talking about earlier that was used in the case of the Adelaide Rapist, where you look for first-order relatives. You know, human remains are found, then, it, then you, that may be the brother or the child or the father of, of someone who's missing someone. We use other 
kinds of DNA strategies as well. So, for example, we can predict the ancestry of someone who's human remains, their eye colour, their hair colour. And so we can try and paint a bit of a picture of what that person might have looked like. And that might also help to establish their identity or narrow a pool of candidates. There are other techniques that are used. So, um, you know, anthropological examination of the, you can predict the, the biological sex of someone from their bone structure. You can use isotope analysis to predict where they might have lived, how old they are, when they died, that kind of thing. And all of those techniques can be applied. Medical records, so so dental records can help identify people based on you know any dental work that they've had done. All these kinds of techniques can be used. Failing all that, then a last method of resort is to then turn to genetic genealogy to try and identify the relatives of someone who may not have reported a missing person, as in the case of Carl Webb. That's been incredibly educational, and I've learnt so much, and I'm now going to actually reconsider whether I do genetic testing for ancestry. So thank you so much for joining us, Dennis, and um, this is a space we're definitely going to watch. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Crime Insiders Forensics is a listener original production. It's hosted by me, Catherine Fox, and is produced by Ed Gooden. Sound design and imaging is by Link Kelly. 